to the Maritime Podcast. You are listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Today we are in conversation with Thomas Knudsen, managing director of Toll Group. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Marcus. Today we are going to be learning from Thomas about how Toll Group handles the challenges of managing logistics during a period of unprecedented global supply chain disruption. Before we move on to that, I'd just like, Thomas, if you provide our listeners with a brief view of Toll's global operations in the sea freight business. Absolutely. So the Toll consists of three divisions, global forwarding, global logistics, and global express. We've just sold our global express business. So the remaining Toll group is Toll Global Forwarding and Global Logistics. And the global forwarding business is about slightly more than two billion Australian dollars of revenue. Our ocean is a big part of that. And we really see ourselves as an Asian player with a strong foundation in Asia, but also in Australia and New Zealand, of course. But our core trade lanes are Asia to Australia and New Zealand, Asia to the US and Asia, Europe and intra-Asia. So that's really where we play. And to give you an idea, we're number seven on the Trans-Pacific in terms of NVO. We were eight last year, but we've taken some market share there. So we've in some ways benefited from the disruptions. We also have the other forwarding products such as air freight, rail, customs clearance and so on. But Ocean Freight is in reality our biggest product. We move a little more than half a million TUs a year. So half a million TUs, that's a pretty significant volume. Because we are not everywhere, which is one of the things that we say is actually a strength. We don't pretend that we can do everything, although we have a global network of 150 countries where we have agents, but we really focus on these core trade lanes. So when you've got a half a million TUs in a smaller segment, it does mean that we are a significant player where we're present, we leverage that network. So taking that network, as I mentioned at the start there, we've been seeing a period of unprecedented disruption in the supply chain, obviously around everything that's happened with the COVID pandemic. Perhaps you can explain to our listeners what some of the key challenges have been for Toll during this period. Yeah, I would say I've been in the industry for 30 years. And if you ask me, I would probably say that I've seen it all. And also that normally I could make a prediction of the future. I could tell what would happen, but I couldn't tell exactly when it was going to happen. That hasn't been true for the last 18 months, for sure. If you look back and look at where we were in January, February last year, when the real impact of COVID started to emerge, shipping lines were blanking sailings, equipment orders were being stopped. Equipment was not being moved around and we were all looking at a massive drop in consumer demand. And most of us were starting to prepare for the worst in terms of how do we navigate through this unprecedented crisis. And within a a little more than a quarter, actually, as we got into the third quarter of last year, we suddenly saw the pickup started with the PPE shipments that happened out of China to the rest of the world. China kind of got back on their feet from a manufacturing point of view, Vietnam managed very well through COVID. And already in the fourth quarter last year, we suddenly saw, especially into the US, an increase in demand. So we went from the darkest of times to actually starting seeing some hope from an external perspective. I think every company in any industry over the past 18 months have then also had to deal with internal issues. So in Europe and North America in particular, offices were closed, people were working from home. So working as a team to solve the problems has not been easy. And we've spent a lot of time and effort in trying to keep our people safe. So it's operationally, physically been really hard to manage it. And then if you look at what has happened the past nine months have really been this amazing surge 
combined with unprecedented disruptions. So demand in particular in the US has surged. We've seen an increasing growth in the markets into Europe and Australia the past three or four months for sure. And at the same time, we've just seen these events that have really disrupted us. The ever given Suez Canal issue, the stoppages in, in Yanchen because of COVID, then it went to Ho Chi Minh, then it went to Ningbo, port congestion in Los Angeles, Brexit in the UK, trucker shortage in the UK and in the US. I think I can keep on going, but it's really been a difficult market to navigate for our customers and for us. I mean, that is quite a list of things you were starting to go on with there. And I can understand that you could add many more to that as well. Completely unprecedented situations we've seen here. And that's also driven up freight rates to levels, which I think, you know, well, I don't think either of us have seen in our careers. So how do you manage these situations for your customers? I think one of the starting points is because of the volume, we have some very strong relationships with a number of our core carriers. And we've certainly worked with those core carriers over many years, and we've worked to really navigate this crisis. And I think the carriers are are trying hard to make it work. And, and whilst they're not always making it, it work, they are they're trying hard. And, and we've had a number of contracts in place with the carriers, whether it was FAK or named account for specific customers. And then in addition to that, we've really work with them to say, how can we help you? What are the areas where you have equipment or where you have space? What are you looking for in terms of rates? What do you look for for predictability of flow and so on? So it's really been a partnership with the customers and the carriers. A lot of the customers have been extremely frustrated. They've come to us and to other freight forwarders and said, how can you help us? And as you said, prices have been very, very high, especially in the spot market. And what we try to do is saying, we can solve your problem or we can solve part of your problem. It might get expensive because the carriers are asking for very high rates, but we've tried to be as flexible and find solutions. We've trucked containers across country borders to find ports that perhaps had a little more equipment or, or had more space. We've worked on different models. So if we've had customers who've had delays in container shipping, we've offered them sea air, we've offered them air solutions or rail solutions. So I think it's it's really trying to offer the customer solutions and let them pick what they want. And at the same time, sitting down with carriers and saying, how do we leverage your network? How can we collaborate? And then we've also opened doors with new carriers that we didn't have relationship with before. As you know, on the Pacific in particular, a number of new products have opened up. Some of them have been one or two sailing. Some of them are more permanent strings. And we're really collaborating with them to say, how can we get a seat at the table with them? So it's been a lot of work. We're probably spending double the amount of time per booking we get just to coordinate with the different players. That's a significant amount of additional time, obviously. Now, you're from a carrier background yourself. How much does that help in terms of understanding what's happening here? Well, I think it helps understanding the carriers and where they come from. And, and I think sometimes their customers are forgetting that since the global financial crisis, financial returns in the industry has been very, very poor. In order for this industry to be sustainable, there needs to be profits. I absolutely understand that from a carrier point of view. I would probably argue that perhaps it's gone a little bit too far for some industries, not all, but some industries like furniture and other areas where you might have high volume, low value products. This is a real problem, not just from a cost point of view, but it can actually mean that you can't conduct business. So I think we've got to find long-term and more sustainable pricing level that can allow customers to survive. But I, I do understand what drives carriers. We've got a really strong team in our ocean product. And of course, when we sit down with the carriers, we try to 
to walk in their shoes to understand what what their challenges are and see whether we can fit with them. It's not always that our priorities align, but often if we work for a solution and they can see that, we probably get a, an opportunity to, to get a little more space that we can offer to our customers. I can understand that. You mentioned a bit before about trying to come up with other options for your customers, sea rail, air freight. How viable are these other options in terms of the volumes that you can offer? And for example, say furniture is probably not practical for air freight. It's probably a little bit different per trade. If you look at the Pacific trade, you don't necessarily have a lot of options. You can either put it on a ship or you can put it on an airplane, but it's hard to find a rail solution across the Pacific, or at least you would go around the the other part of the world. So Pacific is really a choice between air and ocean, but even on ocean, you've got multiple products, right? You've got some really fast products that also come very expensive with strong commitments, and then you've got some more standard products. So finding a, a combination of those. Air freight is, of course, an alternative, but certainly during the first part of COVID, with the retraction of passenger flights, there was just no belly capacity. And over the past 10 years, because of the growth of passenger, uh, freighter capacity had gone down. So that has been hard to put down. There's been some conversions that have come back into the market and so on, but there's certainly limitations on air freight capacity generally compared to what it's been. But if you compare a 15,000 TEU container ship and you look at the number of 747s you would have to fly or 787s, it just doesn't compare. So there's no real alternative. But of course, at the higher end of the market, if you're looking at technology, high in fashion and so on, you can use air freight for some of it. Europe, there's a lot more options. There's been individual truck moves from China to Europe. There's been user rail and so on. Again, rail has emerged, I think, as a real alternative Not for everything. Again, a train can't handle the same type of volume, but we're now seeing blockchains moving from China and from Vietnam into Europe. We're seeing regular rail movements and so on. So rail has probably benefited more than anyone else from this, but we certainly also see these other modes, the combination of sea air and air. Sea air is probably the kind of best intermediate product because it's roughly half the price. It's a much lower carbon footprint and you get a lead time of about two weeks door to door, right? So if you compare that to a, an ocean product, that's half. And if you compare a natural or a scheduled air product, which might be five, six, seven, eight days, the difference is not that big. So I think sea air is a great alternative to it, but we're trying to offer all of those. But ultimately, you can't replace 23,000 TUs of very large container carrier by any other means. So that is the key product. The sheer volume that moves by ocean is... Uh... Well, phenomenal. It's quite interesting what you're saying there about the rail into Europe from Asia and that gaining some traction. I was a bit surprised by the idea of trucking from China to Europe. Yeah, and the trucking product, I would say, is probably the exception, but people have been testing it just to see whether it was viable. It's obviously a very long way and roads and customs and so on are are not making it easy. So I wouldn't say it's, it's a normal product, but it has been tested. I think rail is really immersed. I was in China 10 years ago when rail was starting, and at that point, Lead times were very unreliable. It would take 26, 28, 30 days to reach Europe, and you couldn't predict whether it would be 20 or 30. If you look at what is offered in the market today, it's much more consistent. The lead times are better. And I would say certainly for Eastern Europe, for Central Europe, it's great products, but we're also now seeing rail movements into the UK. So rail has become both more reliable and more frequent. And I think that's really helped over the last 18 months. Great to have that alternative. But both of those modes, actually shipping, rail and trucking, would all require containers, of which has been, you know, we've had a serious shortage. What's the situation with that now and how do you handle that? So as I started out by saying, I think during the beginning of COVID, 
people very much held back on buying containers and they also held back on moving MTs back to Asia. So for a long period that came back to haunt the carriers, congestion also meant that people wouldn't be backloading MTs or they wouldn't have room for export from the US and from Australia. I think that's improved. So we are seeing a, a better equipment balance. It's also fair to say that that China has really stepped up here in the manufacturing space and, and we're seeing a lot of new equipment coming in. And then I think people have become very uh, flexible in trying to find equipment uh, in places where they might not have had it before. It could be domestic moves, it could be older retired containers that are being brought back into fleets and so on. So everybody's really leaned in. So I would say the container shortage is probably more now an issue of specific locations. So there's pressure on equipment, but it's more a question. It jumps kind of from location to location, depending on which ship came in and, and dumped some MTs and, and, and where's COVID restrictions and so on. But it's improved a lot compared to where we were a year ago. That's good to hear. Sounds like it's a fairly dynamic situation still there. Absolutely. I think in a lot of this with repositioning, all these sort of things, a lot of people pointed to technology solutions to sort of help kind of optimize and understand where everything is flowing, where the goods and the empties are. Is this something that you've been investing in and using the technology? Yeah, so you can argue as we don't provide the equipment ourselves, it's more working with the carriers for them to identify where their equipment is. But we're, of course, trying to help them book cargo where we know there is equipment. So I, I do think technology plays a really important part, especially on the part of the carriers. I think the second part is really how technology is emerging as a an attempt to get into invisibility. So a lot of customers are struggling with understanding what happens if the manufacturer is late on meeting their deadlines. Then there is an issue of getting it on a truck. Then there's an issue of customs clearance, getting on a ship, getting it to the destination, getting it out of the yard and so on. So most of large customers understand that and what they're saying is we understand the problems but what we want to understand is how does it actually work when can i expect my cargo to arrive and what's my alternative if there are delays so we're clearly working on that we're using global cargo wise which is one of the foundational systems for many freight forwarders as our core operating system but we've then built technology solutions on top of that that gives our customers visibility a lot of milestones, updates, a lot of notifications when cargo suddenly changes status, if there are delays in, in transit, and trying to find options for what can we do differently. Often it's difficult to change anything when the box is on the water. So it's often about saying if a cargo has not been loaded and it's been delayed, is there another mode of transport? Can we take something out of the container and fly it or whatever is needed? So it's it's the constant battle to stay on top of it and technology and visibility is, is at the forefront of that. So it's a case of once you've got that visibility, you're able to make changes, obviously, as you say, not when it's on the ship, but on the land side. Yeah, and sometimes you can't. And I think the important thing is if you know that a certain part is not going to make it within the shipping window of, of the customer, you can go back to the customer and say, what do you want? We put something on a ship that's going to be arriving in 32 or 36 days which is two weeks late for you, what do you want us to do? And they can potentially go back to the manufacturer and say, we want 100 pieces or whatever we need urgently to be flown. They can go and buy it from a different suppliers and so on. We can't necessarily fix the problem, but if we give visibility, our customers can then use that visibility to, to find alternatives or plan for contingencies. So it basically gives the customer that knowledge that they can try and make contingencies potentially. Absolutely. I, I think that's a big part of 
of freight forwarding. One thing is trying to solve people's problems. The other one is to, to try to give them the visibility where they can help themselves and do that as early as possible and as clearly as possible. Everybody gets the fact that the world is a hard place to operate in now with COVID and, and all the, the bottlenecks we have. So it's, it's often as much the giving the heads up and the visibility to a problem coming down the road than being able to act on that. As I think some of our listeners may be aware, you were unfortunately also the victim of the bad side of technology, which was a cyber attack. And that's something that every business faces. What have you learned from that? And what can you tell our listeners about how you manage that situation? We're not the only ones. If you look at it, I would say that over the past five years, every single one of our large shipping partners has been hit in one way or the other. So it, it has unfortunately become a very clear industry problem. The second thing is it's, we got hit in toll last January, but I'd actually experienced the same problem in Maersk a number of years ago. So from that perspective, even though it was an unpleasant experience, at least you have a sense of what's happening and, and allows you to navigate. I think if there are learnings that I can share with the audience, the first one is very likely to happen to you. So it's probably more a question of when and if, because cybercrime is increasing, we can see that it's hitting everybody, even the most well-protected businesses. So I think there's two things you need to think of. One is, how do I protect myself better? How do I ensure that I build the walls around my business that allows me to protect myself better? And secondly, if people break through those walls, how do we then recover as quick as we can? And we've certainly learned some lessons there. We had a lot of integration with customers, especially in our logistics business, but also in forwarding. And when you have thousands of integration points and small systems that are built with the customers for very specific reasons, coming back is very difficult. So we focused over the past two years in trying to build a standard operational platform. We've moved more systems onto the cloud, which will hopefully allow us to recover better. The cloud will not necessarily protect you from a cyber attack, but often it will allow you to bring back your data much faster. So I think the two key lessons is assume you'll get hit and start thinking about how you'll manage that in terms of recovery. But then, of course, also do everything you can, whether it's multi-factor identification on all your systems and all your devices, really being clear on where your devices are and who's using them, being sure that partners you work with are protected, which is an important part. We often think about how do I build a wall around my own entity? But what sometimes happens is that some of the partners that you deal with are being attacked and the attacker can move through them into your system. So be paranoid and really invest more than you think you should. I've talked to IT before, both within this organization with some of our customers. They often go, yeah, no, no, we're good. We've got everything handled. We're doing well. And then a cyber attack happens and you realize there were things you could have done better. So I think that paranoia, the focus on continuous improvement, and then how do we get out of it if we do get hit? Probably the three things to think about. And I think it's quite interesting what you mentioned there with your partners and also obviously the interconnectedness that we have with customers and so forth. So you've got to look at the whole chain. Yeah, and I think, Marcus, one of the things that has happened in logistics over the past many years is that every customer has their own demands, right? They have their internal systems that they want to interface. And ideally, they would like to have an interface that is specific to them and gives them everything they need. The unfortunate side of that is that when something then goes wrong, whether on our side or on the customer side, it's very hard to bring it back because it's very specific, it might be running on an old platform, it might not have had the patches that it needed. So our view is if we can have that standard systems platform and our customers can work with us on those system platforms, we'll do better. It doesn't mean we can't do tailor-made solutions, it just means being very 
cognizant of the fact that a cyber attack can have an impact and therefore work together on, on understanding the trade-off between functionality and cybersecurity. I'd say I think it's some very good advice there for everybody because you know this can affect absolutely any industry in any sector. I know you said at the start of this that actually predicting what is going to happen next is extremely difficult. Not like in the past where it probably could draw on history and think, okay, this is what's going to happen next in the market. But looking more at Toll Group itself, what have you got planned over, the, say, the next 12 to 24 months? I think if we do try to predict what's happening, our view is that the current disruptions will continue for a period. We just don't see that there's any necessarily changes in that, at least the next probably six months, but it could go on beyond that. We see that the customer segments we are present in are doing very well. So retail, technology, and so on are are businesses that are doing well in, in the current environment, and we think that will continue. So the focus for Toll is really to build on that. We're seeing explosive growth, both in revenue and and profit. We're seeing that our customers are coming to us and asking for more solutions. So they're saying, you know, with with all this disruption, having a port-to-port freight forwarder is not enough. We want you to help us with solutions that goes for customs brokerage. We might need value-added services. We need mainly trucking. Uh, but they're also saying, and what about other modes of transport, as we talked about? But also customers are coming to us and saying, well, if you're doing all of that, Can you help me with some of our warehousing needs and distribution needs? A lot of our customers have shifted from brick and mortar to online trading, and they've had to build new systems to handle that, but they don't necessarily have the infrastructure. Our value proposition to our customers is that we are big enough to matter, but we are small enough to care. And by that, I mean, we have procurement capabilities. We can get the right things done for our customers, but we are not a global top five freight forwarder with $20 billion of revenue and and 100,000 people. We think we can fit really well into that more personalized service level. So our focus over the next 12, 18 months is really about growth. It's about building additional products. So how do we strengthen our products in LCL? How do we strengthen our rail, sea air, consolidation product on air? How do we add more value-added services in the markets we operate? So we don't necessarily have plans to grow in new geographies. We want to grow in in Asia. So there's a couple of markets that we're looking to to start up our own offices. We're looking for growth in Europe and the US where we're already strong and present. But we're not, for instance, looking to expand into South America or Africa. Those are markets where we will continue to use agents. So it's really about the strategy of strengthening where we already have capabilities, making them better and doubling down on that. But it's clearly a growth strategy and it's an Asian growth strategy. We see Asia as the future, both in the forwarding division, but also in the global logistics division, where we have a strong footprint across Asia and Australia. So very much an Asian story then. And also, I think the other thing I picked up from that is that a demand for a wider range of services from your customers. Absolutely right. I talked about what is the customers working on. They're saying, if something goes wrong, how can you help me solve that problem, right? So the ability to offer different products, but also this ability to say, hey, if your demand over the next week is shifting from brick and mortar stores and you need to go online, we'll put on 100 picking stations and we can do a lot more online for you for the next month. And and then we can go back to normal after that. So I think that flexibility and being able to work with the customers and combining a forwarding and and a logistics and distribution point of view is is critical. So we think we've got that capability in in our core markets. We're interested to see how it develops over the next 18, 24 months. Come back and have a talk to you to see what's developed. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add. I think we all see a difficult market ahead, but I think 
suppliers like ourselves who can offer solutions to customers will win. We're very optimistic about the growth opportunities and we still see global trade growing faster than it has in the past years. Part of that was slow 2020, but we're quite optimistic about the market. We're quite optimistic about Asia and we think we fit well into Asia. So that means we're pretty optimistic about toll also. So we're in a good spot, Marcus. Let's meet in, in 18 months and talk again and see whether the optimism was well-founded. Well, it's good to be optimistic. That's a nice note to end on. I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to come on the Maritime Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. My pleasure, Marcus.